0: Father, we ask you to pour your spirit upon us, opening our eyes, our minds, and above all our hearts to the glory and meaning of your word. More than this, Lord God, give us the courage and wisdom to be not only hearers of your word, but do us also. In Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The subject I've been given tonight is the spirit of truth, the spirit of error. The spirit of truth, the spirit of error. Something we have all encountered, or most of us have encountered. And you open the door, we're from the Watchtower Society, it's the Jehovah's Witnesses. Or We're from the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, people in cults claiming to be Christian coming to the door. If you've been saved any time at all, you'd have no trouble tying a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon in knots. You can always win the argument. When they come to my door, I invite them in immediately. Call my wife. Shalom, pavia. And I say, what language do you speak? And I say, Hebrew. And they begin to suspect they may have a problem. (laughs) So I say, do you mind if I open my Bible? Not at all. So I open my Bible and it's Greek. Then I know they have a problem. Not because I'm so clever or because I know Greek and Hebrew, but because they don't know anything. Somebody saved a few years with a good grip of the Word of God and knowing something about where these cult groups come from would have no trouble, no trouble winning the argument. The problem is, what happens when you win the argument? I can show a Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is God. He's worshipped as God. I can show him the Greek and Hebrew. Of course, Jehovah's Witnesses are trained to change the subject. Well, you know the word trinity is not in the Bible. Either is the word millennium, but you believe in it, but that's not the issue. What about Jesus being God? Why is he worshipped if he's not God? Why is he called God? You can always get them, not only can you paint them into a corner, you can get them to paint themselves into a corner. It's not difficult. But even when you show them, even when you prove to them, look, this is not biblical, they won't believe it. It's just you may as well be talking to the wall. No matter what you say to them, no matter what you show them, they won't believe it. They'll get to the point where they see it's true and they can't refute it, but they'll pull away. A couple of months ago, I was in Palm Springs, California. That's a place where film stars from Hollywood retire. And my friend there is the leader of the local Messianic Fellowship of Jewish Christians. And uh, we were out on the uh, high street, the street where they have a street fair every Tuesday night. And the Messianic Fellowship had a table. Jesus is the Messiah, and we were giving out tracts and witnessing to people, to Jews and non-Jews, and we are just witnessing and so forth. And right up the street was a table from the local Orthodox rabbi uh, from the local synagogue, and it said, ask the rabbi. So I went up to his table, and I asked the rabbi. I only spoke to him in Hebrew, and I said, look, Daniel 9 says the Messiah had to come and die before the second temple would be destroyed. All he could do was give me arguments from the Talmud, but I could show him other arguments from the Talmud, proving that that's what it says. He couldn't deal with the issue. The Messiah had to come already. The Messiah had to make the Gentile nations believe in the Jewish God. Finally, he just asked me, in Hebrew, are you a Christian? Me, Khan! Me, Khan! Get away from me. I'm not going to deal with the issue. You believe in that, then that's it. Get away from me. Couldn't, couldn't refute what I was saying. My family is a mixture of Roman, Catholic, and Jewish. I love Jewish people. I love Catholic people, but because I love them, I want them to know the truth. St. Paul says directly, forbidding marriage is a doctrine of demons. He says that in Timothy. It is a doctrine of demons. It is demonic. You outlaw what is natural, people will do something unnatural. All over the world, Roman Catholic priests and nuns are being caught left and right molesting children. And the hierarchy of the church is being caught left and right, covering it up. Cardinal of Boston, Massachusetts, Cardinal of Dublin, Ireland, Cardinal of London, England, the Cardinal of Los Angeles, they caught in New Zealand, a nun wanted. Wanted for handing little girls over to pedophile priests in Australia. She was wanted by the police. The Roman church said she was dead, and they were hiding her in a convent in Wellington. All over the world. Can't you see? It's a doctrine of demons. People are going to do things perverted and unnatural. Doesn't matter. They'll still believe it. I've gone through this with all kinds of people from all kinds of religions. I've talked to Muslims. I talked to Muslims. I said to them, look, according to the Hadith, according to your own literature, Muhammad married Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakr, when she was only six years old and took her virginity at the age of nine. Now Jesus said, suffer the little children unto me, to theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're telling me a man who your own literature admits is a pedophile, is God's prophet. They couldn't refute it. wouldn't refute it. But they still believe it. I am not a cessationist. I believe the gifts of the Spirit, understood and practiced biblically, still exist in the church. Now, I wouldn't want to be associated with charismania or hyper-pentecostal extremism, but the idea that the gifts of the Spirit ended with the apostles, in my view, is not biblical. I believe the gifts of the Spirit understood biblically. I don't think most of what we see today is biblical or even genuine, but I don't deny what's in the Bible. However, I've shown people, my fellow Charismatics, Pentecostals, call them, call me what you will. Look, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, ekrete in Greek, not the lack of it. If somebody had a problem with alcohol and they got saved and they went into a pub and began getting drunk, the Holy Spirit's not in control of them because they're not in control of themselves. The Holy Spirit is only controlling someone, in control of someone when they're in control of themselves. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We're told that directly in Timothy and in Galatians. How can you tell me somebody on the floor and drunken hysterics, out of control, is the Holy Spirit when the Bible says it's the opposite? Can't you see, this is, can't you see that no revival came from this? It's always the same nonsense. The same people who went into the laughing and drunken thing from Toronto and Pensacola, went to the gold teeth and the gold dust that was a con job. And those same people got into the Alpha courses in England. Uh, since Alpha Courses began in England, more mosques have been built in England than churches. The Church of England loses 1,000 people a week. Uh, the same people who get into that, get into the promise keepers, and now the purpose-driven thing, they, they go from one gimmick to another, but no revival comes. The purpose-driven thing is, of course, based on marketing and psychology, not scripture. No revival will come from any of these things. I'm not saying the people who are trying to find revival or have bad motives, but the things don't work, they're not scriptural. Can't you see it doesn't work? No revival came from it. Why can you believe this? It doesn't matter what you show them. What, hap- what is this that, 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 that there's somebody, a Jehovah's Witness, a, a Mormon, a Roman Catholic, an Orthodox Jew, a Muslim, even a hyper-Pentecostal or a hyper-Charismatic, no matter what you show them from the Bible, that this is not scriptural, they're still going to reject it knowing it's the truth. What we're talking about is what the Bible calls the spirit of error. It is not my proposal that every Jehovah's Witness or every Mormon or every Roman Catholic or every Orthodox Jew has the spirit of error. That spirit permeates those organizations, those institutions, but I'm not saying every person in it has that, but I am saying a lot of them do. What is this spirit of error? More than that, why is it that you can't do anything about it other than pray for them? Why is it you can do nothing about it? That there's nothing you're going to say to them or show them that's going to persuade them to deal with the issues, to deal with what the Word of God says. Nothing you're going to show them is going to change their mind. Turn with me, please, to 1 John chapter 4. This is a creaky platform, so I'm being taped, so I better remove my cloud hoppers. First John chapter 4, please. Verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. The first thing we see is Discernment is not an option, it is a command. Discernment is not an option, it is a command. Those who will not investigate things, the Greek word is diakrino, those who will not test and investigate things on the basis of Scripture to see if they are of the Holy Spirit are in rebellion against the commands of the Lord. Today, the political correctness of the secular world has permeated the Church Today, being discerning is called being critical, being judgmental, being divisive. Forgetting that 1 Corinthians 11.19 says heresy is supposed to divide. Forgetting that we're commanded to diacrino. Do not believe every spirit. Notice also, not only is discernment commanded, but it is the test of a spirit, not of a man. We're not judging people. We're judging the spirits that motivate them. We're not talking about error tonight. We're talking about those who are in it. There's a difference. It's not the test of the man to see if he's from God. That's the fruit of the Spirit. This is the test of the spirits. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. We have to understand this. When the Bible says Christ Jesus, it's him in eternity. When it puts his messianic title first, Christ Jesus, or Hebrew, Hamashiach Yeshua, when it says Christ Jesus, it's him in eternity. When it says Jesus Christ, it's him come to earth. Okay. John was up against an ancient heresy called docetism, where people denied that Jesus was actually physically incarnated. When he walked on the beach, he didn't leave footprints in the sand, said the docetists. It was all an illusion. Now, it's crazy, but it still exists today in parts of Africa, and the Elam denomination that you have here and in England, in their magazine, they published an article some years ago by someone in England called uh, George Canti, which said, Jesus Christ had no Jewish blood. Where did the blood come from? This this is docetism, you understand. This is docetism. It's an ancient heresy. Every spirit that does not confess, this is the spirit of not an antichrist, but the antichrist, the definite article in Greek, which you've heard that is coming and is now already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, they are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God; he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit of truth from the Spirit of error. The Spirit of error. The first thing you will see that will tatter, that will define a spirit of error is a false prophet. Someone who poses to be speaking in God's name, but says something false. It doesn't matter if it's Muhammad, if it's Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormons, if it's Charles Tazzy Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, it doesn't matter if it's a pope writing an encyclical saying that Mary had no sin when Mary said she did. It doesn't matter. Every single time you see the spirit of error, you will find a neve sheker, a false prophet, every one of them. Second thing you'll see as a result of this false prophet, you will find a false christology. A False Christology. They will believe something false about the Lord Jesus, something fundamentally unbiblical, something denying some biblical truth about him. I once had somebody in Christ Church, New Zealand, who was making a big issue of baptism in the name of Jesus only. As soon as you hear that, the issue is not baptism, the issue is the Trinity, one God and three persons. Now I explained the reason, because the Jews had baptism, because the Greeks had baptism, they were already being baptized in the name of the Father. <laughs> I explained the background. But the issue was not baptism. The issue, of course, was one God and three persons. The triunity of the Godhead. I don't care if you use the word Trinity, but one God and three persons is what the Bible teaches. No, the Father's Jesus, Jesus is Jesus, the Holy Spirit's Jesus. Well, how do you account for the fact that when Stephen was martyred, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father? Did he see one or two distinct persons? you know what this person believed? If somebody was hitting you in the head with rocks, you'd be seeing double as well. That was... <laughs> now, we can laugh at it. Three years ago, the biggest selling... Now the biggest selling Christian book in the world is the purpose-driven thing. Three years ago, it was the God Chasers, which mean the epistles as dusty old letters. It was written by Tommy Tenney, a man who denies the Trinity. doesn't believe in the Trinity. That's his background. A false Christology. The Jehovah's Witnesses? Arianism. Jesus is Michael the Archangel. He's not God. The Mormons? Oh, Jesus is not the only begotten of the Father. Monogenes. He's the half-brother of Satan. The Roman Church? Oh, the blood of Christ doesn't cleanse from all sin. You have to atone in purgatory for your own. Islam, oh, he was only a prophet, but Muhammad is a greater prophet. You'll find a false prophet and a false Christology when you have a spirit of error. They'll believe something fundamentally false about the Lord Jesus. Now, again, this is not the test of a man, but of a spirit. I once heard the leader of the Assemblies of God trying to defend Rodney Howard Brown and the clowning in tongues, and he said he called up Rodney Howard Brown, this is in Australia, and asked him if he believed Jesus came of the flesh. And Rodney Howard Brown said, yes, he did. So as far as he was concerned, that settled it. Toronto was of God. (laughs) It's not the test of a man, it's the test of the spirit. test of the man, you know them by their fruits. The fruit of the spirit, one of them being self-control. Or the fruit of the spirit being love, but self-control being one of its attributes. Talking about spirits here. John's talking about spirits. Then he says the spirit of Antichrist, but it's the definite article. We have two Greek words for Antichrist. This is the normal one. I'll write it in Greek just for the camera. Antichriston. That's the normal one. However, there is another word that is co-equally important and co-equally Antichrist. The other term for Antichrist is pseudo-logan, or pseudo-logos. Jesus is the logos. He's the incarnate word made flesh. Jesus is the incarnate word made flesh. He's the logos, with the Logon, different case ending. So, Antichrist is the pseudo Logon, a false Antichrist. The word Antichrist in Greek does not only mean against Christ, it means in place of. And in place of the Logos, you have the pseudo Logon. Where you have the spirit of error, you will have the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist. The same as the Holy Spirit. Is preparing the true church for the coming of Jesus. The spirit of Antichrist is preparing the apostate church for the coming of the Antichrist. You understand? The same as the Holy Spirit is preparing the true church for the coming of Christ. The spirit of Antichrist is preparing the apostate church and the world for the coming of Antichrist. So you have spirit of Antichrist And with this you'll have a pseudo-logan. A false word. It doesn't matter if you call it the Koran, which the Mormons claim to be a Third Testament. It doesn't matter if you call it the Book of Mormon. It doesn't matter if you call it a Talmud or a papal encyclical. It doesn't matter if it's a false prophet giving a false word of God to the people, saying, thus saith the Lord. It's a A pseudo-logan. Pseudo-logan. You'll always find those things, but you'll find one other thing. It makes sense to the world. It fits the world. When you have the spirit of error, it fits the worldview. It makes sense to the way that people think at that time. Now let's understand this just a little bit further. John wrote the Epistle of John, but he also wrote the Gospel of John. Look at John chapter 14, please. John chapter 14, verse 16 in the Gospel. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Greek word parakletos, that he may be with you, that is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. In both the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John, we see that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. But the world can receive the spirit of error. The spirit of error counterfeits the Holy Spirit. The spirit of error counterfeits the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Leads us into truth. What does the spirit of error do? Leads them into error. Only they think it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> to the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Holy Spirit is an non force of power, but they believe that this power or force guides them or guides their leaders and founders. The Holy Spirit is being counterfeited. It's not the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's the spirit of Antichrist. Only they think it's the Holy Spirit. The Bible says all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. There's one intercessor between God and man, Jesus the righteous. The greatest woman who ever lived was Miriam, not Mary, and was Miriam, mother of Jesus. And in a replay of the Song of Deborah from Judges chapter 5, An angel called Gabriel, Gavriel, the mighty one of God, tells her she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And Miriam responds in the Magnificat saying, my soul rejoices in God my Savior. The angel tells her, Miriam, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah who will save his people from their sin. And she responds by saying, my soul rejoices in God my Savior. Now Mary said she needs to be saved from sin. The Bible says all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. That's why God had to become a man in the person of Jesus. Oh no, Mary's Theotokos, the mother of God, says the Roman church. Wait, that's not in the Bible. She's never called Theotokos. The word's not in the scripture. Well, she had no sin. Now, if Mary had no sin, that would mean her mother had no sin, and that her mother had no sin, and her mother had no sin. It goes on and on. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Miriam says she needs to be saved from sin. However, the Pope can issue an encyclical called Munita Santissimus Deus, claiming the Immaculate Conception. Mary doesn't need a Savior, she had no sin. Who do I believe, Miriam or the Pope? Who's right, the papal encyclical or the Pope? Well, it's a pseudo-logan. And he claims to the magisterium of the Church to be guided by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wouldn't contradict the Bible. This is the spirit of Antichrist. But they can't see it. Now, don't get me wrong, I have a very high view of Miriam. I love Miriam. I esteem Miriam. I think Miriam is fantastic. I think Miriam is sensational. I think Miriam is terrific. I think Miriam is marvelous. I look greatly forward to meeting Miriam. But I want nothing to do with that stupid, dumb, blonde, bimbo, shiksa, Mary. That's not the mother of Jesus. That's a pseudo-Christianization of Ephesus, of Diana, of Minerva. It goes back to Semiramis in Babylon, Thomas and his Madonna mother. It's nothing to do with the real Miriam. But people can't see it. You can show, what was Mary wrong? No, no. Doesn't matter. Got a false prophet, a false Christology. What happens? Oh no, Jesus didn't save us alone. Mary co redeemed us. There's not one intercessor between God and man. Mary's the co mediatrix. Spirit of Antichrist, pseudo Logan worldview. Can I ask very briefly do we have anybody here who used to be Roman Catholic and became born again and renounced Catholicism? Put your hand up. Look around. Put your hand up just for a minute, please. Look around. You see these dear people? If you want to know what Roman Catholicism is, Don't ask Chuck Colson. Don't ask J.I. Packer. Don't ask some ecumenical evangelical. Ask somebody saved out of the Roman church. They'll all tell you what it is. It's the whore of Babylon and Christian masquerade. It is not biblical Christianity. Ask an ex-Catholic. Let them speak for themselves. But it's not just Rome. It's the spirit of error. The Holy Spirit is counterfeited. They think it's the Holy Spirit showing them this stuff, but it isn't. It's always the same. But let's go further. Why does it make sense to people? Why does the world receive it? The worldview, the way that people look at things at any time in history is something that a philosopher or a theologian would call by the German term zeitgeist zeitgeist the worldview is determined by the zeitgeist zeitgeist simply means the spirit of the age the spirit of the The age. So, whenever the church gets seduced by the spirit of error, it'll always be something that makes sense to the world. It'll fit the worldview. The world will listen to it. It'll make sense to the worldview of the time. After the apostles died and went to be with the Lord and so forth, or were martyred and so forth, we came into the patristic era. But Constantine the Great Christianized the Roman Empire. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. Oh, yes, it is, said Constantine. So somebody had to come along and find a way to justify his kingdom being of this world, when he said it wasn't. And they had to find a way to make it suit the worldview of the time. We're talking here at the 4th century, and the worldview was Platonism. And so somebody called Augustine of Hippo comes along. And Augustine of Hippo, he was a Platonist. And he came along. And even though the early Christians were premillennial, they believed in a literal millennium, pre nicene church. Oh, no, that's fulfilled in the church. His kingdom is of this world. He was influenced by people like Cyprian of Carthage, the sacramentalist, and by Ambrose of Milan, the religion of the state. They had to rewrite Christianity as a Platonic religion to suit the worldview based on Plato's philosophy and other pagan ideas. Augustine had been in a Gnostic sect during the Platonic age called Mankianism, Mankianists. They had the Greek Platonic idea of dualism, Platon idea of dualism. Everything physical was bad. Everything spiritual was good. So because human reproduction is a physical act, it must be bad. So Augustine comes along and says, the only good thing about holy matrimony is having children who will be celibate. The only good thing about marriage is having children who won't get married. Crazy. To this day, kids are being molested because of that. <laughs> Pagan. That was the worldview Was Platonism. In the Middle Ages, it changed. It began to change in the Islamic world. Europe was in the dark ages under the medieval papacy, but Islam was having its golden age. And there was a revolution in Islam based on Aristotle's philosophy. Now then, Islam was not like it is now. It was a westernized philosophical Islam. That wasn't fundamentalist Islam like Saudi Arabia and the Wahhab. It was based in Egypt, and it was dominated by uh, Turks. The Islamic world was dominated by Turks, not Arabs. And... They followed Aristotle. Aristotelianism. And Aristotle. This is the Middle Ages now. The Crusades began bringing this stuff back to Europe. First, a rabbi named Rambam, Moses Maimonides, rewrote Judaism as an Aristotelian religion. He wrote a book called Guide for the Perplexed. But then someone called Thomas Aquinas wrote a book called Summa Theologia. And he rewrote Christendom as an Aristotelian religion. Now Aristotelianism is something pretty much discredited. It was totally discredited. Aristotle had a, a view of chemistry and physics that was the basis of his philosophy and worldview. The Greeks knew about elements, you know, like the, the uh, periodic chart. They knew about elements. The Greek word stoikiae. They knew about elements but they didn't know about subatomic particles, they didn't know about gramatomic weight or atomic number, they didn't know about, understand valency. In those days, alchemy was a combination of chemistry and magic, superstition. And the Greeks believed, or Aristotle's view of, uh, the Greek worldview of stoichiometry was, something could be something on a atomic level, but it could be in appearance, something different. In other words, this can look like a pen. It can write like a pen. But actually, on an atomic level, on an elemental level, stoichiometrically, it is not a pen. It's a cigar. Give me a light. You laugh. People actually believe that. People actually believe that. Oh, it looks like a pen, but it's not a pen. It's a cigar. That's only its appearances. Its appearances were known as accidents in Aristotle's philosophy. It's only its accidents. Well, well it might look like a pen, but it's not only its accidents. It's a cigar. It might look like bread. It might look like wine. It might taste like bread. It might taste like wine, but it's been transubstantiated. Actually, it is the body and blood of Jesus. It's protoplasm, divine protoplasm incarnate. Today, a Roman Catholic will tell you they believe in transubstantiation by faith. Originally, they didn't think it was a matter of faith. They thought that's what it was chemically. (laughs) Crazy. Loony. But that was the worldview, so people believed it. Thomas Aquinas formulated the doctrine of transubstantiation in its present form. This goes on. You get to the 16th century... After the Renaissance, it becomes humanism. People like Erasmus of Rotterdam and John Collett in England, they inspired the Reformers. Initially, it was a Christianized humanism, but it soon became secular humanism after the Enlightenment. So by the time you get to the 19th century, humanism has become rationalism. Nineteenth-century German rationalism. Well, Well, that's the new worldview. That's the zeitgeist. Now, let's see. How do we make Christianity a secular humanist, rationalistic religion? Nobody can believe in a god of miracles in the age of the electric light, wrote Rudolf Bultmann. These are just moral stories, ancient tales, myths that have been embellished to teach us moral principles. Oh, there might have been a historical Jesus, but the one who walked down the water, that's the Jesus of faith, not the Jesus of history. This is what liberal higher critics believed: Higher criticism, Liberal Protestantism. But the time you get to the 20th century, the zeitgeist is called consumerism. Consumerism. (laughs) Dial now this free toll free eight hundred number. Give us your Visa, MasterCard, or American Express, and this too can be yours. And as an added bonus, if you call now, we'll throw in another piece of junk you wouldn't buy if you saw it in the shop. (laughs) Name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. This is consumerism comes to church. Consumerism depends on two things, at least. Psychology and marketing. Psychology and marketing. Now, this doesn't work for anybody but the motivational speaker, but you'll see a motivational speaker will come. He'll come out with an expensive suit and a Benny Hinn haircut, and he'll come out and say, Visualize your dream. Make it a reality in your mind. Maximize the positive. Minimize the negative. Picture it. Once it's become a reality in your mind, you'll be able to make it a reality in the mind of others you'll get that venture capital, you'll get those shareholders, you will get those investors. Now of course the only one it really works for is the motivational speaker. When the Dow and the TI go through the basement, it doesn't work for anybody but them. So this is in the church. God has given me a vision, hallelujah, for a church that's going to see 10,000 people, it's going to cost $26.4 million. Don't tell me about the unemployment. Don't tell me about how many single mothers we have in our church. That's negative. I don't receive it in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. We want a positive confession. You understand what they're doing? This is consumerism. It's motivational psychology put into Christian jargon. You do your market research, you find out what people want and give it to them. This is the whole Bill Hybels-Rick Warren thing. Purpose-driven. Biblically, agape love puts God first, self second. No. God first, others second. Self last. But in a consumerist church, what church is going to meet your needs? Now, biblically, it's he who waters will himself be watered. Scripturally, it's What church is God going to use you to meet the needs of others? (laughs) That's biblical. What church is God going to use you to meet the needs of others? God will meet your need by using you to meet the need of others. He who waters will himself be watered. Oh no, what church will meet your needs? Find out what people want and give it to them. It's marketing research based with psychology. These things go back to Robert Shuler, whose mentor was, of course, Norman Vincent Peale, the Freemason. This is consumerist psychology. They may put it in Christian jargon, but it's simply consumerism. Now they got a problem. Where do you get a theological basis for this, since it's not in the Bible? You have to invent one. There was a cultist who influenced a woman called Mary Baker Eddy. Mary Baker Eddy said, old age is an illusion, illness is an illusion, death is an illusion. She's the founder of Christian science, which is neither Christian nor scientific. First she fell victim to the illusion of old age, then she fell victim to the illusion of illness, and alas, voila, la grande illusion, she snuffed it. (laughs) It's an illusion, illness is an illusion. So you get the Benny and Kenny guys, the Copeland guys, my body's lying to me. You understand, this is... These occultists had this idea, and it comes from a mistranslation of the word Hades in the King James Bible, into hell. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Father, into your hands I give my spirit. He won the victory on the cross. Following E.W. Kenyon and William Branham, they said, no, no, Satan got the victory on the cross. Jesus was tortured three days and three nights in hell and was born again in hell, then he rose from the dead. So because the cross of Jesus is not their view of the gospel, neither is the cross of Jesus their view of the Christian life. Instead of pick up your cross and follow me, instead of cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown, it becomes you're a king's kid. Name it and claim it. You don't have to suffer. Crazy. Crazy. This is consumerism. In the first edition of her first book, Joyce Meyer said, unless you believe Jesus went to hell, you can't go to heaven. One of these days, she's going to shake her head, and those earrings are going to knock her teeth down her throat. It just doesn't work. It's not biblical. It's consumerism. But people believe it. You can show them. You can show them what they, on television in America, Copeland said he could have died instead of Jesus Christ, because he's born again. You can show them, it almost doesn't matter. Spirit of error, this is consumerism. Consumerism, it's based on psychology and marketing. Now it combines psychology with Eastern religious views. Let me explain why. Biblically, we're imagio dei beings, we're three-dimensional men and women. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Our spirit is as distinct from our emotions and intellect as our emotions and intellect are from our eyebrows. We're three-dimensional, not two. But secular psychology is based on Darwinism, and it makes us two-dimensional. What is spiritual is simply seen as Psychological. The soul and the spirit become confused in psychology. Following Freud, and although Jung believed in a spiritual aspect of man, it was metaphysical. It was the collective unconscious. It was basically a cult. So we're two-dimensional according to secular psychology, but according to Eastern religion, we're two-dimensional. If you are to go to a street corner in Seoul, Korea, or Bangkok, Thailand, or Singapore, you'll see statues of Buddha on the streets, And the Buddhists will visualize what they want to get, the light incense, and visualize it and try to speak it into being. And so somebody called Yangi Chow comes along and writes a book called The Fourth Dimension. And he combines this with the word faith formula of Copeland and Hagen, and he says, your subconscious imagination is your spirit. No, it isn't. The imagination is a function of the soul, not the spirit. You picture what you want and speak it into being. And he writes in the book, he actually writes Hindus and Buddhists have known this for centuries. Now Jesus Christ has shown it to him. This is Oriental shamanism. Again, I'm not judging the man. I don't know if Yi Chao is a Christian, but I do know he's a Buddhist. He teaches Buddhism. He admitted it. This is exactly what? It's not Christianity. But it makes sense to people. Why? Because of the zeitgeist. The spirit of the age. The spirit of error always works through the spirit of the age. And so now we're in the 21st century. The spirit of the age now is the New Age movement. New Age movement. This is the third time in the history of the church where Eastern religion has invaded Western Christendom. The first time was in the post nicene church with the church fathers like Oregon, Basilides, Valentinus. That was the first time when the church was Gnosticized after the apostles, 4th, 5th century. Second time is when the Crusades, wanting to control the spice routes to India, brought the influences of Hinduism and and, uh, Islam back to medieval Europe. The whole thing of counting the prayer on beads comes from Vishnu, the rosary thing, the... The flagellation things in the convents and monasteries were copied from the Shia Muslims commemorating the death of uh, Ali at the Battle of Kabbalah. This was the second time. In the Middle Ages was the second time Eastern religion invaded Western Christendom. The third time is now. As Isaiah warned Israel, my people are filled with influences from the East. Now, we showed videos. Now, again, bearing in mind I myself believe in the gifts of the Spirit, understood biblically. We showed videos of Pensacola, Florida, and Toronto, Canada, and of Rodney Howard Brown to pastors and evangelists from India. They said that's what we were saved out of. It's kundalini yoga. We showed those videos to Romani gypsy pastors in England. There's a big move of God among the gypsies in Europe and in England. And the gypsy pastors told us that's duckering, a Romani gypsy term. And I asked, well, we asked them, what's duckering? They said they're using the occult to get money out of people. They knew what it was. Kundalini yoga. It's duckering. The zeitgeist. It always makes sense to people. The purpose-driven thing will make sense. The Toronto thing will make sense. Transubstantiation will make sense. It always makes sense. It's the spirit of the age. The world will listen to it, because it doesn't listen to the Holy Spirit. Only they will think it's the Holy Spirit. They'll think it's the Holy Spirit. This is very frightening. But the question is, why is it that when you're dealing with the spirit of error that there is nothing you can do about it except pray for them? What can you do? Given the fact that it's a spirit, it's something demonic, why can't you cast it out? I cast out that spirit of the watchtower in the name of Jesus. I cast out that spirit of Mormonism in the name of Jesus. I cast out that spirit of Islam in the name of Jesus. I cast out that spirit of Roman Catholicism. It doesn't work. Why? Why does it not work? And how does somebody come under the control of this spirit? To understand how somebody comes under the control of this spirit, we'll see in a moment. But let's understand why you can't cast it out and why there's nothing you're going to tell somebody who has a spirit of error that's going to change their mind. Why you're wasting your time talking to that Jehovah's Witness beyond a certain point or that Mormon or that whatever. Why somebody into the Elam and the Toronto, why does nothing you're going to say going to change their mind? Turn with me, please, to 1 Kings chapter 22, the very end. Verse 19 of 1 Kings 22, Micaiah, he who was like unto God, said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramat Gilead? And one said this while another one said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. Now notice that every true prophet, like Micaiah, there were over 400 false ones. (laughs) Then he said, you are to entice him also. Go and prevail, go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Well, if it's something demonic, it was a lying spirit, and they're believing the lie, why can't you cast it out? Because God has sent it in judgment. Judgment. Now you can't believe. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 12. Verse 37. But though he performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, and it quotes from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The first thing we see is they would not believe. Let's continue. What does it say next? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Would not, then it says, could not, but then God blinds them. Should not. they would not believe, then they could not believe, and then God says, now you shall not believe. Now, the Greek text there is the subjunctive mood. It quotes from the Septuagint, paraphrases the Septuagint from Isaiah, lest, lest. Lest indicates the subjunctive mood in the Greek language. Subjunctive mood is not so important in English, but it's very important in Greek. It implies doubt. In other words, it was theoretically possible for these people to believe, to be saved, but they wouldn't. Very unlikely it would happen. Why? Because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. They were afraid of being put out of the church. They were being afraid of put out of the denomination. They were afraid of what other people might think. Oh, but my wife likes that church, or my kids like the youth group. Yeah, but it's not biblical. Who's God called to be the head of the family spiritually in the marriage? You or your wife or your kids? Oh, but my friends all go there. Oh, but people won't. Oh, if I do that, I'll lose my credentials as a minister. What are you, a pastor or a hireling? Would not, could not, should not. It's like when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God says to Moses and Aaron, go to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. God says, go back to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron go back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God says, go back to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron go back to Pharaoh, and again he hardens his heart, and then God says, that's it. Now I'm going to harden your heart. Now notice this is diametrically opposed to Calvinism. God does not harden people's hearts because he elected them to hell. He hardens their heart in response to their own persistent rejection of the truth. Somebody does not come into the influence of this cannot-believe until they've been confronted with the truth. It's when that Jehovah sees the truth, can't refute it, and pulls away because he fears the watchtower society, and he fears man more than he does God. It's what will my family think? He who loves father or mother more than we is not worthy of me. It is what will the community think? It's what will the cost be? They see the truth. Then they pull away. That's when somebody exposes themselves to coming under the spirit of error. Oh, they wouldn't believe. Oh, I can't believe the Watchtower Society is wrong. I can't believe the Church of Latter-day Saints isn't true. I can't believe Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. I can't believe that the Pope is a false prophet and that Mary had sin. I can't believe. Would not, could not, fair enough, should not. It's like this. Who is it? It's me, Jesus. Let me in. No. Who is it? It's me, Jesus. Let me in. No. Who is it? It's me, Jesus. Let me in. No. Okay. Now you can't believe. Now you can't let me in. Now you can't believe the truth. Now you can't repent. Would not, could not, should not. No, you cannot cast out the spirit of error because God sent it. When he shuts, no man opens. We're told in Revelation. These things, like Pensacola and Toronto, these things, the ecumenical movement, these things are not just deceptions, they are judgments. Let's understand how this works. Turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the dual penalty of their error. homosexuality and lesbianism but in verse 26 God gives them over to it the Presbyterians ordain homosexuals the Anglicans ordain homosexuals the Uniting Church the Methodists ordain homosexuals now there's a lot of homosexuality and lesbianism in the Roman Catholic clergy we all know that but at least they don't officially ordain them it takes a Protestant to go that low We're not talking about the world here. We're talking about the church, supposedly. God gives them over? To degrading passions? We were born this way. You are what you are chromosomally. There's only X and Y. The kind of tissue lines the intestines, it's called columnar epithelium. It's a single strata. Its underlying musculature is not designed to facilitate penetration. Intestinal tissue is hyperabsorptive. Tears easily, predisposes people to all kinds of infection. Homosexuals are statistically in a high-risk category to the point that Their longevity is reduced by a quarter to a third. You know that. They die more than two decades younger in most cases than heterosexuals. That's frightening. More likely to have coronary vascular disease, more likely to cause a serious automobile accident, more likely to be a heavy smoker, more likely to be a substance abuser hundreds of times more likely to develop certain kinds of cancer, particularly Kaposi's sarcoma, and thousands of times more likely in the the developed world to be HIV-infected. Biostatically, medically, everybody knows it! But God gives them over. Go ahead, have homosexual marriages, ordain them. If it's natural, why is it that the only places I ever see homosexuality and lesbianism in the third world are places like Bangkok, where little kids are sold into homosexual slavery to entertain businessmen from Australia, New Zealand, America, Britain, Japan, Germany, etc. Our ministry runs orphanages in Africa. I go to Africa all the time. Why don't you see homosexuals in Africa? Why don't you see, if, if, if it's natural, it should be uniform, it should be transcultural. But it isn't, it's only in the decadent Western world the post-Christian world. Unless somebody became a homosexual or a lesbian in a penal institution, talk to them and find out. There's an organization I know in the States and in Europe called Living in Freedom Eternally. It's ex- homosexuals and ex-lesbians who got saved. They'll all give you their testimony. They'll all tell you the same thing. Unless somebody became that orientation in a penal institution or something, Every homosexual had an absent or weak father figure, and every lesbian had an absent or weak mother figure. She may have been a strong personality, but not a strong mother. Every one of them. In other words, the rise of homosexuality is directly proportionate to the divorce rate. And The breakup of the family. but we're expected to accept the fact that it's normal? Why? How can churches say it's normal? How can medical science say it's normal when they know it isn't? Where do you have same-sex penetrative relationships among any other the vertebrae in the animal kingdom zoologically? You don't. Giraffes and kangaroos have more sense. Because God gave them over to it. Do I hate homosexuals? No, I love homosexuals. That's why I hate homosexuality. If I love people, how can I love a lifestyle that's going to kill them, let alone put them in hell? Their sin is no worse than mine. When I was in university, I was a cocaine addict. Jesus died for my sin. He died for their sin. I'm not saying I'm any better than they are. But the same Jesus that saved me from cocaine can save them from normal sexual orientation. Cocaine would have killed me. It's killed some of my friends. Certainly homosexuality kills a lot of people. They reap in their own bodies the dual penalty of their error. God gives them over to it. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, verse 26. But again... It's the spirit of Antichrist. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now in this context, it's not talking about salvation as in justification, being born again. It's not talking about salvation as in present sanctification. It's talking about the future. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Lift up your head, your redemption draws near. It's talking about redemption. It's eschatological. It's talking about the last days. Look at verse 11. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. What? This chapter talks of the apostasia, the apostasy, the great falling away in the church that will herald the advent of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. The Lord will send a deluding influence to make them believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. When people reject the Bible, they're taking pleasure in wickedness. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the word. If people don't love the word, they don't love Jesus Christ. The rest is just religious gibberish. If you love Jesus, you're going to love what's in the word. God will give them over. He'll send upon them a deluding influence to make them believe what is false. Oh, you want to follow false prophets? I'll send you a false prophet. If people can't see through the obvious, if people can't see through Benny and Kenny, what's going to happen when this guy comes? The Lord will send a deluding influence. This is the spirit of error and it is absolutely terrifying. God makes them believe it. We're told that in Romans, we're told that in Kings, we're told that in Thessalonians, God makes them believe it. They reject, reject, would not, could not, that's it, should not. There is nothing you're going to tell them that's going to change their mind. Nothing, absolutely Nothing. I would expect that piano to repent before somebody with the spirit of error. I would expect that chair to repent and believe the truth before somebody with the spirit of error. I have more faith to believe for the piano than I do them. You may as well talk to that wall. There is nothing you're going to say, nothing you're going to tell them once someone is given over to the spirit of error. Nothing. Nothing. What can you do about it? Pray? Fast and pray? Yes, but that's all. Well, there's actually one other thing you can do. Look again at our base text in First John. First John 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. How many people here used to be in crazy churches or in cults or in false religion and the Holy Spirit took you out of it? Put your hand up, please. Put your hand up. Just from everybody, put your hand up. Used to be in some wacky church, some wacky. You know why you no longer are? Because you're God's children. Because you're God's children. Sincere people, true Christians, can be in all kinds of crazy things. But if they really love Jesus, the Holy Spirit's going to show them through the Bible to get out. Come out of her, my people. doesn't say they're not his people. But because you are my people, get out of it. Woe to you, daughter of Zion, or dwells at the daughter of Babylon. Get out, the Hebrew prophet said. Come out of her, my people, said the Lord Jesus, Revelation 17. Why did you see through it and come out? Why did you leave Rome with the Jehovah's Witnesses? Why did you leave the Elam or the Toronto thing? Why did you come out? Because you're God's child. You've overcome them because greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. The world will believe that stuff, and so will worldly churches. The fact that you've come out is because you belong to God. What is the second thing you can do regarding the spirit of error? Other than pray? (laughs) Thank God you're not one of them. Now let's understand this. When God blinds, when God hardens, there's nothing anybody can do except God. It's impossible. My family are Israeli Jews. My wife, my children were born in Galilee. I've led a number of Jews to Christ over the years by God's grace. Most of the people I've led to Christ have been Jewish, probably two out of three. but this blindness on Israel is something the scriptures speak of plainly. They rejected Jeremiah, they rejected Isaiah, they rejected Amos, they rejected John the Baptist, they rejected their own Messiah. Would not, could not, should not. The book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 25, tells us, I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery, my brethren, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Notice the hardening of Israel is partial and temporary. There have always been individual Jews who believed. And a time will come when the natural branches will be grafted in again. God will save Israel. The first Christians were Jews, and the last Christians will be Jews. If anybody thinks contemporary events in the Middle East don't fulfill prophecy, they already have their head examined. The stage is being set for the return of Christ as we speak in the Middle East. The fact that Jews are again beginning to believe in Jesus in significant numbers is a sign that he's coming soon. A partial and temporary hardening. This blindness on Israel, why can't they see it? God's blinded them as a nation. But he will remove it. When will he remove it? In the great tribulation ultimately. In the time of Jacob's trouble during the 70th week of Daniel. In the Tekufat Hatsorat Yaakov as we say in Hebrew as Jeremiah called it. At a dark gruesome hour when they will know everything they trusted in, everything they believed in was a lie. It is false. Jesus is the Messiah. In their desperation they'll look upon him who they have pierced and mourn as one mourns for an only son. Zechariah tells us what happen. What does it take for somebody to come out of the spirit of error if they're really given over to it? A crisis, a calamity, a desperate situation where they're going to be confronted with the fact that they've trusted and believed a lie and rejected the God-given truth. Usually, people won't come out of it. Usually, people will die in it. But if somebody does come out, you're praying for somebody who has the spirit of error. Expect a crisis. Expect a calamity. Expect something that their belief system will fail. That the lie in which they trust it will be exposed and debunked for the lie it is, and they'll turn to the truth. That's what it takes. Now, when you're dealing with loved ones, with family, people you care about, this is difficult. It's difficult. Terrible situation. You can't cast it out. Forget about binding, rebuking. Forget all that That doesn't work. Talking to them, you've told them everything you can tell them. There's nothing further you're going to tell them that's going to change their mind. You can let them see your life. What you say with your life might mean something, and you can pray for them. But there's nothing you're going to tell them. No matter how many arguments you win, no matter what you prove to them, no matter what you show them through the Bible, they will not believe. They will not believe the truth. They'll keep believing the lie. There's nothing you can do. It is impossible. God sent it. It is impossible. It is absolutely impossible. Except for prayer, prayer, and fasting, we can do nothing. It is impossible. What can you do about the spirit of error? Nothing. It's impossible. It's impossible for you or for me to do anything. It is just impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God bless. Have a good evening.